Chapter 1 of Immortality and the Unseen World A Study in Old Testament Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Immortality and the Unseen World by W. O. E. Westerly. Introductory. Chapter 1 Some Preliminary Considerations. 1. The subject to be treated on the lines of comparative religion. No department of Israelite religion can be adequately dealt with unless it be studied in the light of the religious beliefs of kindred people. It may, in these days, be regarded as axiomatic that, whether it be Israelite religion as a whole, or whether it be some particular part of that religion, the subject cannot be properly understood nor adequately appreciated unless it be studied on the comparative method. No scholar has done more to show the need of this than Robertson Smith. He says, quote, No positive religion that has moved men has been able to start with a tabula rasa and express itself as if religion were beginning for the first time in form if not in substance the new system must be in contact all along the line with the older ideas and practices which it finds in possession a new scheme of faith can find a hearing only by appealing to religious instincts and susceptibilities that already exist in its audience and it cannot reach these without taking account of the traditional forms in which all religious feeling is embodied, and without speaking a language which men accustomed to these old forms can understand. Thus, to comprehend a system of positive religion thoroughly, to understand it in its historical origin, and form as well as in its abstract principles, we must know the traditional religion that preceded it. The profound truth of these words is only enhanced when applied to the Israelite belief in immortality. We find in the Old Testament a mass of antique conceptions regarding the life beyond the grave which the Israelites shared with other peoples and which had been handed down from time immemorial. But these antique conceptions, though, as a rule, fully discernible, are nevertheless often blurred. Many appear as remnants of earlier belief. To understand them, the Old Testament is not sufficient. We must seek the parallel ideas, beliefs, and customs as these appear among other Semitic peoples, in order to realize their significance. Not only so, for since in some instances these conceptions have come down from a time when man was in a lower stage of culture than the Semites were at any time of which we have cognizance, it follows that the origin and history of an idea must sometimes be studied in its form among savage men. The scope of the present study does not permit our extending our inquiries beyond the Semitic domain. But here and there 
references will be made to the ideas and customs of non-Semitic peoples. We are not blind to the dangers involved in treating our subject on the comparative method. The student of comparative religion is, as all the world knows, not infrequently tempted to see parallels which are such only in appearance, not in essence. There are many pitfalls. While we have taken pains to keep this danger in view, we are far from feeling assured that in dealing with subjects which are at times very intricate, we have always succeeded in avoiding these pitfalls. But, however insidious the danger, it would never do, on that account, to forget that many undoubted parallels between the Israelitish beliefs and conceptions about immortality, and those of other peoples, do really exist. And these parallels concern not only beliefs and conceptions, but also customs and usages to which they have given birth. There are still many people who claim for the religion of Israel absolute uniqueness and originality from its beginnings onwards, and who therefore refuse to recognize parallels of any kind among the beliefs, and possibly also the customs, of other peoples. To such be it said that if religious development took place in a more pronounced degree within the limits of one nation, or what comes to the same thing, if the response to divine inspiration was more intensive, and therefore fuller, on the part of Israel's religious thinkers, that does not imply that the divine solicitude was unmindful of, or left itself without witness among, the peoples of other races. The religious faculty has been accorded to all men. The capacity for apprehension has varied immensely among them, whatever the reasons for this may have been but all have, in greater or less degree, responded to what has, in effect, been a divine revelation to them. It may be that some would describe it as folly to contend that the crass ideas of early man are to be looked upon as a response to divine revelation, or indeed that a divine revelation was possible to man in such a low stage of culture. But however crass those ideas may be to the modern thinker, they were not so to early man. And if they represented the utmost that the savage mind could rise to, is it not in accordance with all our belief in God that the divine interest in man should be such as would have consideration even for the most childlike efforts towards truth? we smile commiseratingly and with justice at the naive conceptions of the man who lived, say, 50,000 B.C. But what right have we to suppose that our conceptions will be less naive to the men of, say, 50,000 A.D.? To an omniscient God, the advance in thought from the time of the dawn of man's understanding to the present day, 
may not be so great as it appears to us. When St. Paul in Athens told how he had seen an altar to an unknown god, he frankly recognized that the worshippers at this altar had been seeking after God, though in ignorance. It is, therefore, both on scientific and religious grounds, that the Israelite ideas and customs which we are to consider should be illustrated by the parallels among other peoples. 2. Inconsistent Ideas in the Old Testament we come now to another preliminary consideration. The study of the Old Testament belief in immortality often appears very puzzling because such inconsistent ideas are met with in close proximity. We find there, at times, crass and childish ideas. And we find there distinctly advanced conceptions. And sometimes, these occur mixed up together. How are we to account for this? The answer is, we believe, twofold, in dealing with things religious, and especially when it is a question of teaching, men are influenced, generally speaking, by two tendencies, either consciously or unconsciously. These tendencies may be described, roughly, as retrospective, and prospective. There is, mostly, an inclination to view things in accordance with a set mode, and to teach accordingly. What has been handed down, what has been received, is regarded as authoritative, and must therefore be treated with respect. That is altogether fit and proper. But traditional ideas and traditional teaching are again and again seen to be at variance with the new points of view, and therefore with the new ideas, which press themselves into the minds of the thinking. Hence arises this twofold tendency of looking back upon the old and looking forward to the new. These tendencies are strikingly illustrated in the Old Testament. With some at all events, of the writers of the Old Testament, respect for tradition induced a disinclination to discard any part of the venerable records of the past, and therefore the ideas and teachings embodied in them. On the other hand, these writers were faced with the fact that thought advances, widens, develops. Owing to one cause and another, new points of view arose. Some of the old ideas were seen to be untenable, for it was recognized that they were based upon misconceptions. They had, therefore, to be modified, or, in some cases, altered altogether. Consequently, we find that in the Old Testament the spirit of compromise has been at work, and the form that this has again and again taken has been that the old wording has been kept as far as possible, only that which was thought to be absolutely necessary having been altered. At the same time, certain things demanded by the development of thought and conception were added. 
we may sometimes wonder why this process was not carried farther we may also wonder how the redactors of the books could be content to leave what upon occasion amounts to a glaring inconsistency without a more heroic attempt to soften it down the attempt is at times made but the inconsistency remains one must however remember that the oriental is not very logical in his ideas an inconsistency which is a veritable worry to the western does not trouble the eastern thus the old testament has within it the marks of compromise this applies emphatically to the subject with which we are to deal the belief in immortality things are said in regard to this belief which are inconsistent with each other and therefore the attempt has been made to compromise but as the compromise is by no means always satisfying the subject appears at times very puzzling three two beliefs regarding immortality in the old testament but there is a second and more deep-seated reason for these inconsistencies indeed in dealing with a belief in immortality in the old testament it is found that not only do inconsistencies exist but conceptions are met with which are of an entirely contradictory character we may go so far as to say that they are mutually exclusive the presence of these can we believe only be satisfactorily explained upon one hypothesis and that is that the old testament has preserved two sets of ideas and beliefs regarding the future life the details of these will be found in the following pages and therefore we shall not deal with them here but the hypothesis may be briefly stated thus speculation regarding the departed the place of their abode their powers their desires their requirements their activities their relationship to the living all these things have exercised the minds of men of all races from the earliest times various beliefs concerning the departed some of them fundamentally identical in character took shape independently among the most diverse races we are not for the moment concerned with the subject of how and why these beliefs arose but only with the fact that they did arise the semitic race shared these beliefs with other races and though the semites moulded them in accordance with their special genius most of them so far as their fundamental essence was concerned were the same as the beliefs of other races now the israelites shared these beliefs with the rest of the semites and among them the belief which developed in the course of time in what was called by the israelites sheol a lugubrious place to which men went when they had finished their ordinary life among the israelites this belief underwent a fundamental change because it was found to be incompatible with the belief in yahweh the essence of this change consisted in the teaching that they who went to sheol could never leave it they were tied to it for ever 
this had not been held hitherto but the official exponents of the religion of yahweh found it not only difficult but quite impossible to root out the ancient traditional belief which was held by the people for centuries therefore two beliefs existed in israel regarding sheol the ancient popular belief and what came to be the official belief and doctrine these two forms of belief are to be found over and over again in the old testament other beliefs which centered around that of sheol and which were expressed by various practices were also found to be incompatible with the religion of yahweh but in spite of penal enactments against the perpetrators of these practices they continued until long after the exile the existence of two diametrically opposed sheol beliefs a popular and an official illustrated in a variety of ways in the old testament is amply sufficient to account for inconsistent and contradictory elements regarding belief in the future life details of what has been said are dealt with in the following pages four plan and method of dealing with the subject a few words are called for in order to set forth the plan and method which have been adopted in dealing with the subject of belief in immortality in the old testament we begin with a brief consideration of the hebrew ideas regarding the various parts of which man is made up this is required for to the question what part of man continued to live after death the answer given by the ancient hebrew is uncertain it was obvious that he distinguished between the soul and the body and at first we should be tempted to say without hesitation that the belief was that the soul continued to live after death while the body went to corruption but there are some considerations which suggest that this does not represent what was really believed why was there such a horror among the hebrews at the idea of a dead body being burned why was it regarded as such a grievous punishment for a body to be buried in foreign soil why above all was it considered such a dreadful thing for a body not to be buried to this last question there are two obvious answers one is that since a dead body was unclean it was necessary to bury it lest contact with it should cause contamination the other is that the natural feeling of respect for the dead would demand decent burial probably however these two answers do not exhaust the subject at any rate the two other questions suggest that the body was not done with at death we referred just now to the popular sheol belief according to which that part of man which after death went to sheol was able to leave it on occasion temporarily the reason it wished to do so was its intimate relationship with the body even after death the great care expended on graves may be supposed to have had something to do with this embalming was not it is true 
in vogue among the Israelites, and it is very uncertain to what extent they were influenced by Egyptian belief concerning the life hereafter. But there are some grounds for believing that the Israelites put spices within the grave clothes with the primary object of preserving the body. Then there is another consideration. We draw attention later on, but it requires mention here, to the inscription of Eshmunazar, in which it is said, I lie in this coffin and in this grave, in the place which I built. I adjure every prince and every man that they open not this resting place. I adjure every prince and every man that they open me not, nor uncover me, nor carry me from this resting place, nor take away the coffin of my resting place, lest these holy gods deliver them up and cut off that prince and those men and their seed for ever. Other similar sepulchral inscriptions are not wanting, and though they are not Israelite, they are Semitic, and there is every reason to believe, as will be seen in the following pages, that the Israelites shared the beliefs about the hereafter common to the rest of the Semites. As to this inscription, and others like it, it is evident that the solicitude evinced has reference to the body. And once more, what is the purpose of placing food, utensils, arms, ornaments, lamps, etc., in tombs by the side of, or in close proximity to the body. When this kind of act is taken into consideration, it is quite evident that one cannot say offhand that the Israelite belief regarding the component parts of man's body was simply that the soul lived on and that the body went to corruption. Above all, we have the definitely expressed belief that life resided in the bones, and that they would flourish and sprout again. It will, therefore, be seen that some discussion upon the component parts of man is a necessary preliminary in dealing with the subject of the Old Testament belief in immortality. Then we come to consider the Israelite belief in supernatural beings. It needs no insisting on the fact that belief in supernatural immortal beings must of itself have some influence upon the belief in the immortality of man, and in what a variety of respects this is so, we hope to show. We divide this part of our study under three heads. First, a brief general survey of Semitic demonology, the fact that among the various classes of demons some were believed to be the spirits of the dead is sufficient to show the appropriateness of dealing with the subject of demonology here. Then we come to the more restricted demonology of the Old Testament. So far as the evidence goes, Israelite demonology was not systematized in the way that Babylonian and Arabian demonology were but that the Israelite belief in demons was of a more extensive character than the comparatively meager indications in the Old Testament would lead one to suppose is probable. 
knowing what we do about semitic demonology in general any references to the subject in the old testament suggest a more extended belief in demons than appears upon the surface for in other respects there are so many points of similarity between israelite belief and that of the rest of the semites that it is difficult to believe that in this particular similarity was altogether wanting the difference that undoubtedly did exist was we venture to think in its want of systematization among the israelites this however came later and was very elaborate a fact which in itself supposes a pre-existing mass of unsystematized beliefs the third division is devoted to angelology the appropriateness of dealing with this in the present connection is we confess not great but when once the question of supernatural beings is raised one cannot well omit some reference to angels it must also be remembered that in view of later developments of belief some consideration of angelology is useful then we enter more directly into our main subject here we consider in some detail what is said in the old testament about the rephaim usually rendered shades in reference to the departed and it is seen that the word occurs apparently in two connections there but the attempt is made to show that the name rephaim applied originally to the sons of the gods who according to an ancient myth were on account of their wickedness destroyed by the gods and cast down into the underworld came to be used of all the inhabitants of the underworld that is of the departed further it is surmised that this word rephaim which is usually explained as the weak ones this being supposed to be descriptive of the shades of the departed is rather to be derived from the root meaning to heal it is then explained why this term should have been originally applied to the inhabitants of the underworld and lastly the significance of this name being given to a valley near jerusalem is shown the abode of the departed sheol is then considered and from this inquiry it comes out that while the official teaching about this place in the old testament is clear and consistent it cannot be reconciled with much that is said about the rephaim the inhabitants of this place we shall repeatedly point out that the various subdivisions of our subject cannot be treated in isolation the different matters dealt with depend so much on one another and each has to be considered in the light of factors which occur in some other subdivision therefore we must insist strongly on the fact that agreement or disagreement with any particular contention put forward here should be withheld until all the facts have been weighed this applies particularly to the subject of the rephaim 
the whole of that division of our inquiry entitled the spirits of the dead and their abode must be read and judged in the light of the division that follows the living and the departed in which we deal with ancestor worship and the cult of the dead and ultimately with the subject of necromancy the chapter that follows then mourning and burial customs lengthy though it is touches upon such a variety of topics connected with our general subject that we have been compelled to leave unsaid much that ought to be dealt with indeed it became evident as we proceeded that the subject of this chapter if adequately treated would require a separate volume the last two chapters deal respectively in the light of what has gone before with the old testament doctrine of immortality and the development of belief which appears in some of the later books and especially in some of the later psalms a certain amount of repetition in quoting passages from the old testament cannot well be avoided since it often happens that passages contain references to more than one subject End of chapter 1